He has a 30-year track record helping executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. From startups to Fortune 10s, nonprofits to heads of state, turnarounds to new markets. He's passionate about creating sound strategies, overhauling leaderships and cultures, and redesigning them holistically for growth. As a co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, he has worked in 25 countries and four continents, helping organizations articulate strategies that lead to accelerated growth, and then designing programs to execute those strategies. The best-selling author of eight books, including the recent Amazon number one, Rising to Power, he's a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Forbes, and is proud to be a member of the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 coaching community. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Ron Carucci. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curve benders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curve benders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Chapter 1, Work-Life Blending, The Secret to Align Corporate Strategy with Personal Objectives. Education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. The power of education extends beyond the development of the skills we need for economic success. It can contribute to nation-building and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela Curvebenders need multiple on-ramps to enter the future roadmap of our lives. You can undoubtedly keep focused on your future of work with a plethora of resources available to you. You'd be better off if you expand your purview to other parts of your life as well. When you make intentional investments in how you live, it creates new opportunities to meet and grow through curvebenders. It's essential to surround yourselves with those who don't think like you do. Cognitive diversity in your network keeps you fresh. From generational to geographic differences, they help us understand that the rest of the world doesn't believe or behave as we do. This exposure keeps you challenging your own views and holding steady on your core values. The holistic nature of curvebenders makes them fascinating people. Although a strong work ethic often creates their professional success, their broader lifestyle provides a glimpse into their significance. As you design your personal curvebenders roadmap, you must create space for serendipitous and intentional relationships to influence your reflections, planning, and prioritize pursuits. The more diverse perspectives around you will create a dramatically more vibrant and fulfilling future. 
these intersections forge new branches in your life to explore not just what you can accomplish, but also who you can become as a leader, as a parent, a global citizen, or a partner. Read the rest of this excerpt from my journey in writing the Curvebenders book in our private, free online community, NOR Forum. Learn more at norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. I'm delighted to uh, have as my guest somebody who very serendipitously we found out uh, we have the exact same birthday. So my guest today is uh, Ron Carucci from Navalent. Ron, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Hey, David, great to be with you and happy birthday. <laughs> Likewise. So we're, we're both, for those of you who want to uh, do get into early gift giving next year, we're both February 15th. There's a reason I'm so ridiculously sweet. It's the day after Valentine's Day. That's another good way to remember it. But Ron and I, uh, very serendipitously, again, uh, at a recent Marshall Goldsmith MG100 gathering, sat next to each other on the bus uh, on, a, on the way to Marshall's home. And one of those soulmate types where the, the more you talk, the more you ask questions, the more the person's responses just absolutely hit home. And, and, and Ron, I really appreciated our conversation on that bus. Uh, absolutely, David. It was one of the highlights of the weekend for me, getting to meet you and hear your thoughts and hear about your work. I thought, gosh, it gives me hope for you know, when, you're, when you're entering a community of people of several hundred people, it's hard to find your, find your, find your own subtribe and uh, connecting with you was a real gift. Very kind. So those, uh, for those who may not know as much about you, can you just talk about where you've been, what you've done, how you've gotten here? And, and we'd lo- love to hear a little about Navalin as well. Yeah. So um, we, uh, I have been managing partner of my own firm at Navalin. I, I started it with two friends. Uh, so I'm co-owner for the last 15 years. We began, we had previous to that been a part of a very large consulting firm in New York City. And when it got a little bit too large, it became less fun. And we decided we love the work of organizational transformation too much to let it become about the, you know, selling the work. So we left to start our own firm. And we spend our days alongside executives, CEOs, division presidents, or, you know, some type of very senior leader responsible for some significant amount of change, whether that's a strategic positioning or it's an organizational reconfiguration or it's some executive leadership capability that they're required to go get in order to deliver a set of results or to get out of a ditch. Um, and so we become the accompaniment to them to help them craft the path that gets them where they want to go. Uh, we have worked with for, Fortune 200 companies. We've worked with in Silicon Valley with startups. A lot of, lot of fun work in the mid-cap world of the people who are at the you know, $300 million level trying to get to the billion-dollar level and helping them pave those journeys. So it's a, it's a fun – it's work we all love and are passionate about. And uh, we wake up every day getting to think about how to leave the world better than we found it. So in that organizational transformation, can you share what are the top you know, two, three consistent challenges you keep running into? Yeah, there's definitely some patterns there. So one is uh, a confusion of strategic identity. You know, one of the early questions I'll ask an executive is, tell me about your strategy. Tell me about where you're trying to get to. Tell me who you are. And I get all the counterfeits. I get the mission statement, the vision statement, the principles or operating values. I get the annual operating plan for the year. I get the product quotas. I get all kinds of counterfeit metrics that don't tell me who you are. And when I dig in to say, tell me about why people would choose you over the other person that does what you do. Tell me why you have proven that you're differentiated in some way and that you're better at something than somebody else. 
Um, when I look for the identity of who you are to the marketplace, I get no sale. Uh, and typically, you get so many versions of that answer that you've now begun to discover what is the reason behind the confusion in your organization? What is the reason behind the competing priorities or the hemorrhaging performance? It's the fact that you're all marching to a very different drum. You go around the table of a senior team and ask, what's our strategy? You get 10 different answers. And now I have the beginning of you know a, a non-articulated identity that's causing some of the problems. But beyond that, you know, uh, I begin to find the fact that your organization is configured to deliver a strategy from 10 years ago. You've not built the capabilities. You've not put them in the right place. You have the linking mechanisms, the governance processes, the, the culture are not configured in a way that would get you the results. I tell my clients all the time, your organization is design, perfectly designed to get the results you're getting. Um, they may not be the results you want, but they're the results you've built to deliver. And so if you want different results, you have to change the system not just by declaring some campaign. So that the, the design and configuration of the assets of the organization are often uh, misaligned. And then lastly, it's someone's own leadership muscles, right? You're, you're not built to lead the transformation. You're not built to execute the strategy as the leader uh, you need to be to get it done. So confusing identity about strategy, um, misaligned assets of an organization, and underbuilt leadership muscles are probably the three areas we spend most of our time trying to uh, you know, help our clients get better at. When uh, this is, this is uh, uh, fascinating to me that it, it, it makes so much sense. When you get pushback, what are the top reasons people push back to, yeah, we really should you know, clarify our message or we really should design and configure the organization to be able to actually do what we're out there espousing that we can do. And by the way, I may not be the right guy to lead this. What, what are the pushbacks you're getting? You know, it's so funny when people, it's, it's often it's the immediacy of the pain they're in, you know, and, um, and so, you know, I, I remind clients, <clears throat> you can't plant a tree the day you need the shade. A and, and that's what you're asking me to do. Um, so it's like, yeah, 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 that sounds like a really comprehensive solution. Isn't there a short-term interim fix we can do now on the way to the bigger solution, which, of course, we all know never happens, right? We all, we all know that we don't ever get to fixing it. We just want triage. And I remind people, look, you may go to urgent care to get your knee put in a tourniquet and to get stitches in your wound. But you leave urgent care with five prescriptions for physical therapy, uh, a surgeon, uh, two medications you have to take. Um, and a, a variety of other things you have to do to get actually get well. So sure, I'll do your urgent care. I'll do your stitches. I'll do your duct tape, and I'll I'll get you out of pain. Um, but you're going to pay me now for the rest of the treatment because I'm not going to be responsible for sending you out of here of urgent care out of pain and and you assuming that your absence of pain is anything useful. Um, and I think so. It's the short termism is one of the major pushbacks. The other one is arrogance. It's the oh yeah, you don't need to do any diagnosis. I already I can tell you what the what the problems are. I, I can just give you the information you need. To which I always say, well, if you could tell me what the problems are, why haven't you solved them? Why do you need me here? Uh, so typically, their assumptions uh, at, at best, their assumptions are have partial truths. Right? It's the culture. It's the with too many layers. Um, our cost is bloated. You know, they'll point to symptoms that have partial truths in them. But but you know, when I ask how many times you've tried to address that before, and I hear well two or three, we we now both know that isn't the only problem. 
because if it were, we, we wouldn't be talking. So typically it's the, the, the lack of a good diagnosis or the lack of a, or the, the presence of a partial diagnosis uh, and the arrogance behind all I know is all there is to know uh, thinking that I have to sort of break down. So as you know, curve benders is really at the nexus of future of work and and really strategic relationships. And the premise is, you know, we've identified 15 forces that uh, dramatically, we believe, will impact the future of how we live, work, play, and give. You've done some fascinating research on I, – I, I really want to hear some insights on this – on honesty and justice. Talk about that research. You know, so we, we, we've all watched the painful realities of Volkswagen and Wells Fargo and Hollywood and, you know, it seems like by the week we're reading about, uh, now, now it's Boeing, um, some painful misstep in an organization. And, you know, at best, the behavioral scientists are talking about, well, it's the culture or it's a couple of bad leaders who are just cruel and self-serving, which are really unsatisfying answers. 5,000 people didn't wake up at Wells Fargo all on the same morning and all think to themselves, hey, here's an idea. Uh, so I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand under what conditions would people behave unfairly or treat each other cruelly or distort or withhold the truth? C- could we, can we know? Could we know that there, is, there have to be systemic factors here, right? There, the, you know, uh, honest people sometimes do stupid, dishonest things. And, and what causes it? Um, I was interviewing uh, a former U.S. attorney. She, you know, she used to prosecute for the U.S. Uh, Justice Department, and she, you know, she moved to private sector. And she, fa- she's very fascinated to me. Said to me, you know, when she first began her job prosecuting corruption, uh, she would walk into these interview rooms expecting to meet the most vile, s- disgusting, self-interested, you know, egotistical people who had done these horrific things. And within 30 seconds, she was always stunned to be sitting across the table from someone she could have had coffee with that morning. This, she, she, she would say, this could have been my neighbor. And they were good people who made, and they're still good people who made really dumb decisions. So uh, we went back 15 years and took 15, we had 3,300 interviews of data across several hundred organizations uh, spanning a 15 year time period to see if we could statistically isolate the factors that would tell us under what conditions because if you you know you think about Generation Z, you think about what expectations of work, you think about what people are looking for in terms of purpose and meaning in their work. Um, you're you're never going to have a an organization of purpose if you have one that's dishonest and unjust. Um, you, you you can't. But but the problem is we have all the marketers purpose washing everything to make it create the appearance of purpose. You have the diversity and inclusion people tackling the inequality issue of the day, the, the ethical issue of the day, which is in, inequality. And you have, um, you know, all the behavioral scientists trying to create psychological safety for people to speak up. Well, but these can't, these can't be isolated efforts, right? You're never going to have one without all three. So we uh, identified four factors that actually would tell you uh, have you built an organization where people are going to be truthful and just? The first one is what we chatted about before, which is strategic identity. When we don't know who we are, we make things up, right? And if you if if there's duplicity in your organization, meaning you say you are one thing but you actually do another, uh, if people have come to believe that duplicity is a norm here, you are three times more likely to have people lie or withhold the truth or behave unjustly. The second one was governance. 
So if your decision-making processes are not transparent, if the access to the right information and, and there's no forum to tell the truth in and it goes underground, you're three and a half times more likely to have people lie or withhold the truth or behave unjustly. The third was um, accountability systems. So if the way you measure contribution, not reward it or compensate it, but if the way you count people's contributions is seen to be unfair, the minute you hear the word, it's not fair, you know the table is set for uh, unethical behavior because when people feel wrong, do they feel entitled to take? And if your accountability systems are seen to be unfair, you're four times more likely to have people behave unjustly or lie. And the last one, which may have been the most surprising to us, was uh, border wars. You know, if you have the classic cross-functional rivalries, you know, sales and marketing or operations and supply chain and R&D, if at the places where the seams of the organization come together are rife with unresolved conflict and there's no mechanism in place to resolve it, you are six times more likely to have people behave unjustly or self-interestedly or distort the truth. Because when we fragment the organization, we fragment the truth. Um, and statistically, it works both ways. So if you have the presence of those factors and in positive notes, th th those factors work the other way. You're six times more likely to have people tell the truth and, and be just. And statistically, it's also cumulative. So if all four of those conditions are true about your enterprise, you're about 16 times more likely to end up on the headline of a New York Times article that you never intended to be in. That's fascinating. Ron, what have you been able to do? I know you write H and, and for the audience, uh, you're listening to Ron Carucci, managing partner of uh, Navalent. Uh, if you just Google his name, you'll find some fascinating HBR articles. Other than writing about this research, what have you been able to do in incorporating it into your advisory work or helping leaders see their environments as, listen, you, you're, you're in essence a petri dish for people, you know, behaving less than with less integrity than you actually need them to or want them to. So it was, it, what's really fascinating, David, is scandal avoidance isn't a great motivator, right? So we, t we tell people, you know, you, you put yourself at risk here. Um, but what, what, you know, so from a, a carrot versus stick, the carrot of wouldn't you want people's best ideas? You know, you, you, you're feeling a symptom of, for example, uh, retention. You know, your best talent is leaving and your worst talent is quitting and staying. And you can't engage them. Well, well, you've designed an organization that discourages your best talent to stay and your worst talent to get better. So wouldn't you want conditions under which you're getting everybody's best performance? Here's how to create those, right? And so the, the four factors of uh, p, 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 to have a strategic identity that's clear means people can locate themselves in the story. So if people, we all know today, the research is all proven, people want a sense of meaning and purpose at work. I want to know that I matter. I want to know that my contribution is making a difference. Well, if I can't find myself in the, the story of the broader organization, I'm going to check out. So creating conditions in which people can find themselves in the story, creating conditions that where, where I know there's a justice about my contribution, where I'll get feedback, where I'll, I'll, it'll be safe for me to fail, where my contributions and my will be will be honored. Um, we live we live in a knowledge economy, right? So today, more than ever, who I am is tied to what I do. I, I measured in, in ideas adopted or analyses rendered or I, um, or in insights offered, and so. You, you, you acknowledging that my contribution is a part of who I am means I'm going to want to give you more. Make, giving me access to data and decisions that affect me, really caring about my voice, not just faux inclusion where you, you try to make it look like I'm included, but I'm really not. 
um, and places where I can be part of a bigger story, right? So if I'm in if I'm in consumer insights, my partners in R and D and marketing matter to me. Together, we create innovation. And so letting let me be part of a collaborative environment where I know I'm part of a bigger story um, matters to me, right? So each of those conditions has an outcome uh, that that that's rooted in deeper purpose for people that can unleash the greatest performance you need. And frankly, you know there isn't. There is hardly a world not being disrupted by digital realities of of, of um, mixed realities, artificial intelligence, um, you know, uh, moving competitor sets and ecosystems where, pe- where competitors are now collaborators. Um, and so, your ability to adapt to those conditions means you have to have people who are in the game. You you just don't have the resources to have somebody sitting on the sidelines, you know, playing Candy Crush or looking at their LinkedIn profile all day. So the upside to um, creating those conditions in their optimal state, there's really a great there's really a great upside there, and I think that's what I find leaders are more attuned to. And the great news is, I mean, as painful as it is to hear about the outcomes, David, they're so fixable. They're really so fixable. Um, you, it takes work. You're not going to wave a silver bullet, or you can't fix them with the, the diversity and inclusion people are not going to fix inequality with the campaign. We're not going to fix justice with a campaign. We're not going to fix. Um, honesty with a, a nudge campaign to get people to sort of, you know, report unethical behavior. Those are very interesting solutions, but they're not lasting. You have to do the deeper work. But when you do it, uh, the upside is well worth it. So extrapolate this uh, organizational transformation uh, ahead for me. What what do you see? How do you see the space evolving over the next decade? You know, I think I think it's the. I mean, we've all talked about the cliche of change is a constant, and it's always speeding up. I think that's going to become so exponentially different. We're going to have you know human and robot, human and machine co teams together. Um, the ability to adapt agilely is going to be required uh, to abandon old organizational forms is going to speed up. So, so building humans that can not become sedentary that can work against their predisposition for predictability and comfort and you know and stasis uh and creating humans that are comfortable with um a constant adaptation you know it used to be that transformation was episodic right you'd have you have incremental changes for the most part you'd have stability you'd have discontinuous change disrupting an industry and the early adopters won the late adopters lost then you had stability I think those years of episodic, incremental, and discontinuous change are gone. I think we're in a constant state now of something in the middle, of a little bit of what, you know, we're not having class one or class five rapids uh, every now and then. I think we're having class two or three rapids all the time. Um, That's just a way of life. How do you learn to thrive in that? How do you learn not to be anxious about that? How do we create humans uh, who can learn to thrive in that and expect it and be okay with it and not fear it or resist it? I think that's the that's our that is our future, but we're not gonna that's not gonna go away. So we're talking about curve benders as really strategic relationships that dramatically change both your direction and destination. Ron, in thinking about where you've been and what you've done, can you think about some you know, you and I talked beyond coaches, beyond mentors, some people that and you can use first names if you want or their full names doesn't matter, but I want examples, two, three examples of people who've had a profound impact on your journey, on kind of where you are and then maybe where you're headed. So I've had, a, I can two come to mind, David. One is a woman who's been my mentor 
and friend for 30 something years. She's now 80, but she's going on 40. She's still lecturing, teaching in university, but she's been, she came alongside me, you know, over 30 years ago in the earliest days of my career when I was still floundering as a consultant and trying to figure out what it meant to be a change agent. Her name is Toby. I've written about her before. One of my TED talks is about her. Um, and I, the, her fingerprint on my life, her love and passion for me, her ass kicking uh, of me when I needed it, um, and, and t- still to this day, is a profound source of fuel to my soul. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm very, very grateful and very blessed to have had her and to continue to have her in my life. Um, I think we all need one of those in our life. We all need somebody who will be the intel chip in our heart. How did you meet her? Uh, so I, um, I, I uh, was a faculty member at Fordham grad school. She just started a new program in org psych, OD, you know, HR kind of thing. And some, uh, somebody on my team was in her program. It was the first year and she was looking for faculty and my team member introduced us and it was love at first sight. And, uh, I taught in the program at Fordham for 15, 16 years before moving to Seattle. And, you know, we're obviously still very, very close today. And she was very involved in my kid's life um, and very involved in, you know, still to this day, shaping and forming who I am. Um, The other person I would say, just if I had to pick a a hero of somebody whose life I wish I could emulate in some tiny little way would be Brian Stevenson. Um, He, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just so smitten with what he's accomplished and how he has suffered and how, how much he's given himself to his cause and all the incredible work he's done uh, in the realm of injustice um, and, and his brilliance, um, his writing, uh, the film that was just made about his life was so moving. So, you know, when I think about a North star of somebody who, you know, I, I, I'm, I will certainly never attain that level of impact. I know, but but the way he lives his life, the way he expresses his values, his dedication to his cause, his ability to articulate really insightfully uh, issues that we want to turn away from, which is how I spend my days in organizations, having to articulate issues that most leaders don't want to see. Um, gosh, he is just a hero to me, and uh, I'm so grateful he's in the world. So, Ron, for people who may not know as much about Brian Stevenson, can you talk a little about his background and kind of his life's work and what he's done and, and, and uh, the impact he's had on you? With, with great joy. So Brian um, was a Harvard-trained lawyer. He's from the South. Um, and uh, um, the movie was just made about his life called Just Mercy with him, Michael B. Jordan and Jimmy Fox about his book Just Mercy. Uh, and Brian has given his life to uh, the Equal Justice Initiative, which is an organization he started 20-something years ago uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, to bring awareness around racial inequality and in our, in our country's historical narrative around racial, racial differences and racial um, differences in value. He, and he looks at our history of slavery and its, and its impact today on mass incarceration, uh, how the civil rights movement you know, had its benefits and limitations. He knew Rosa Parks. You know, he's probably 60 today, but Rosa Parks spoke to him early around his work. So it's an incredible story of dedication. He's, he is, um, I think he and his organization have helped free um, over 100 wrongfully convicted men on, from death row. He has argued and won several Supreme Court cases uh, for death, against the death penalties under wrong conditions. Um, and his organization today fights uh, for justice, for places where it doesn't exist systemically. He, he built, well, he, last year he built and opened, it probably took several years to build, the uh, 
the Civil Rights Memorial, the lynching memorial, to show, uh, and it has a, it's a phenomenally moving museum uh, that shows some of the lasting impact of the the period between abolition and the civil rights, which was every bit as violent as slavery was. We just don't talk about it as much to help us understand that, that until we address these lasting and lingering traumas there, um, inequality will remain a concern for us. So it, it, Brian's brilliance and insight as an attorney and as a, a thought leader and the way he has articulated himself as Ted talk is extraordinary. Uh, he is just inspiration in motion and, uh, um, has deeply, you know, when I think about my work and on organizational justice and honesty and what, what I, I and so many people who work inside organizations wish organizations were, um, I feel like it's a smaller version of the same cause. I can see how he's had an, uh, a, an impact on you. Uh, switch gears for a second, because I often talk about curve benders as people who have an impact on us. And one of the questions I'm often asked is, well, It'd be great to figure out how do you become a curve bender. How do you think one becomes such an influence in somebody else's life? Well, I think I mean as, as uh, I wish I had better language for this, David. But I think I think you have to really care about something, right? You have to want to be a change agent. You have to want to have influence. In fact, tomorrow, I, I think some people ha- have the 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 extreme of that. They have the addictive. Um, addictive version of wanting to help for the we all want to be heroes we all have white knight syndrome i have a piece coming out in hbr this week on how to overcome your obsession of helping too much i think the desire to help others is different than the desire to be a curb bender um i think if you want to actually have a lasting impact and change lives you have to be willing to let go of the ability to do it you have to have a deep level of empathy and care for a, a specific type of cause or a specific type of curve you want to bend but you have to hold it with a loose hand and recognize that you cannot change others who don't want to be changed. The second thing I think you have to do is, have, is you have to have the courage to think big. Um, if you only want to have incremental improvements, or you want to spruce things up or dust off some tarnish, that's a certain that's a certain that's a kind of, that's a kind of curve. That's fair, but I think if you really want to bend a curve uh, and change the arc of a bigger story, you have to have a bold enough look at the world and be courageous enough to think think you know in increments of years and decades, not weeks and months. So I think empathy and care, holding it with a loose hand, and being able to have the art of the long view are probably the three things that come to mind for what I think a genuine, in your, in your definition of it, a real curb bender is. Ron, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank you for, for being you, for your insights, for your writing, for your work. For those who want to get in touch or learn more about you, how can they do that? How can they find out more about you, your firm, and the kind of work you're doing? Yeah, I'd love to stay in touch. So you can find us at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T dot com. We've got some great white papers there. We've got some lots of great articles and videos on resources. I've got a couple of online courses there you can take on leadership and strategic thinking. Um, we also have a free ebook. So if you're leading a major transformation uh, in your world or com- contemplating one or you're you're in the middle of one that's not going well, our ebook called Leading Transformation, uh, an, an owner's manual, you can find and download that free ebook at navalent.com slash transformation. Um, also, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. So I'd love to stay in touch. You've been listening to Ron Carucci, managing partner of Navalent on really organizational transformation. And I particularly appreciated the research, the comments, the insights on uh, honesty and justice. Ron, thanks for being with us. David, my pleasure and happy birthday and good talking to you. Likewise. 
If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast on building an organization of truth and just with Ron Carucci. Three comments Ron made uh, during our interview really resonated with me. Number one, I was fascinated by uh, who pushes back, the types of leaders that push back on uh, really creating a, a succinct strategic focus on innovation uh, designing and configuring the organization to deliver the results you're after, and then really building your leadership muscle. And he said, number one was the short-termism. I love his comments about urgent care and you need to leave with PT and you know potentially surgery and medications, and that's how you get well. Uh, so uh, triage can help, but it's really the long-term uh, focus on living well that's going to elevate or evolve your position. Number two was the arrogance, that all I know is all there is to know, and how your assumptions are often partial truths. So I wonder how many leaders you and I both know that are doing some of these things. Number two was around their whole research around honesty and justice. And although Ron and I covered a lot of ground, I really appreciated, again, the the fact that marketing is purpose washing and diversity is focusing on inequality of the moment and you know the behavioral focus is on psychological safety and that none of those things can uh they can't be isolated uh, of the effects right and then the four factors that it really focused on is really what moved me and wanted me to capture this interview and this podcast in its title strategic identity governance accountability systems, and border wars. So highly, highly encourage you to go back, uh, make sure you capture those and really reflect on them in your own efforts, in your own organization. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So check them out in our free member-based community, NOR Forum. Join us at norgroup.com slash forum. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm using the hashtag Curvebenders podcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates.